The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 50 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 23rd of July, 2020, from the Mobile Aviator Sound Studios from the 7th floor of the Sheraton Springfield Monarch Palace Hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts. Let me start off the show today by saying thank you to Sibby and Runar for joining Captain Roger and me on episode 49, Vikings Take Flight. What an amazing journey they both have had. And I want to say thank you to them for sharing it with us. The latest news we have received here at Squawk Ident headquarters is from FlightGlobal.com. In an article published on the 17th of July, 2020, entitled Something Like uh, Legacy Icelandic Orders Pilots to Take Over After Dismissing All of Its Cabin Crew by David Kamiski Morrow. Legacy Icelandic says it will permanently terminate the employment of its current cabin crew, and permanently discontinue the employment relationship between the parties. The company says that it's been exploring other options to ensure safety and service on board, and has turned to the pilots who are currently on standby to take the cabin crew responsibility. Pilots will temporarily pick up the task from the 20th of July, says Legacy Icelandic. They will primarily occupy a safety role, as the coronavirus crisis means service will continue to be minimal. We will check in with our Viking friends soon for an update to their situation, and we'll let you know how this outrageous plan to cut labor costs pans out for the Nordic carrier. On today's episode, I am very excited to sit down with a phenomenal aviator who I first met a few years ago while flying a two-day sequence together at Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on Squawk Ident to describe our current employer. Since we do not represent our employer in any way, we use this fictitious name of Legacy Airlines. And I can remember that I was very intrigued the moment that he told me about the rigors of his triathlon training schedule. He was preparing for an event that he would be participating in in the days to come after our sequence together. He is an accomplished Legacy Airlines Airbus captain, a retired commander, an E-2 and ES-3A pilot for the U.S. Navy, and an award-winning USA triathlon team member, an SBR sports ambassador, an F2C nutrition ambassador, and a USA triathlon certified coach. Today, I have the privilege in speaking with this amazing aviator about his fantastic journey, right here on the 50th episode of Squawk Ident. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming to the show, Captain Kevin Elmore. 
Captain. How the heck are you? I'm great, Tony. It's good to be here. I'm I'm super excited about uh, the podcast. First time I've ever been uh, a part of a podcast. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Excellent. So we're uh, <laughs> we're introducing you to a whole new world, my friend. And welcome and congratulations. Thank you. Well, you know we uh, we're here on day two of our current three day trip. Uh, we started out in L.A. Uh, we flew from L.A. on that first day to Charlotte, and then from Charlotte to Nashville, only because we knew each other uh, well enough uh, over the first few minutes of flight. As soon as we cruised above 10,000 feet, the first thing we did was we broke the cardinal rule <laughs> of flying together. We start talking about politics and guns and religion, and, and then it was all in the same discussion. <laughs> We covered the whole spectrum in yeah. and, and just a few short uh, thousand feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we, so here we are, we're talking about all this stuff. And, and we had, I think, a pretty good conversation. It, you know, at least took up a good 45 minutes to an hour of our, uh, of our pretty long flight there to Charlotte. Yeah. I, I think uh, when, you, when you just click and you get along with someone, uh, for me, the flight was pretty fast. I mean, we, uh, I don't think we it was quiet uh, too too much on the uh, the journey over to Charlotte from Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, and that's what I really enjoy is just getting into a conversation about just random stuff. I mean, we have plenty to talk about in today's environment. You know, absolutely. Yeah, so we had a little bit of weather to contend with as well uh, on that flight, uh, both on the flight to Charlotte and on the flight from Charlotte to Nashville. And that kind of sparked a conversation that we had. I, I was telling you about a post that I had put up on the social media for the Squawk Ident podcast weeks ago. And it was an image of, you know, the thunderstorms building around our flight path uh, with uh, an overlay of our radar and our, uh, our path from the flight management system and on our, our moving map display that we have. And the comment that I had made on that post was the passengers are back there watching their, their movies and their TV shows that they've binged or downloaded before the flight and, and have absolutely no idea of, of what we do up there. And a lot of passengers and even flight attendants over the years have you know, said to me, well, how hard can your job be? All you guys do is drink coffee and, and read the newspaper. And I, I often rebuttal with, who the hell reads newspapers anymore? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, quite a experience. Uh, I we were extremely busy uh, analyzing all the weather uh, that was ahead. We were trying to figure out the best altitude for turbulence avoidance, uh, but navigating in and out of the the thunder isolated thunderstorms that day was uh, very pretty proved to be pretty challenging. Yeah, we were constantly, uh, uh, you know. Now- Ask ATC if we can go left deviations. Okay. So then I'd call up the uh, air traffic control. Uh, we're requesting, uh, you know, Legacy Airlines uh, 202. We're requesting uh, left deviations for weather. Right. And they'd come back with, okay, uh, up to 15 degrees left or up to 10 degrees left or whatever it was. And we're just in this constant reassessment. And I really enjoyed, you know, the way you would say, what, what do you think? You know, you'd look at, we have on our, electronic flight bags or our tablets that we have each of us on our sides um, that are attached to the aircraft. And we're constantly looking at 
the app that we use at our company is a WSI uh, weather service. And uh, we're constantly looking at this moving map display of the radar and how it looks. And you're constantly saying, hey, Tony, what, what do you think of we go right to this fix before we go around here or should we go to the north? Or, and, you know, that back and forth really... Oh. You're not giving yourself enough credit because uh, you were the one that introduced me to the chart function where you could pull up the low or the high VFR, and it was uh, interesting to use the actual fixes instead of you know, having to ask the controller uh, where's the best path. We picked our own fixes and suggested that to the controllers, and I thought, Wow, this is we're ha- I was having a good time doing it because we were we were basically plotting out our own path with the help of WSI and what we were seeing outside and coming up with our own solutions, uh, the best way to navigate through the the weather. And it, I had a blast. It was so much fun. Yeah, with the and and what Kevin's talking about is so WSI is an app that a lot of aviators uh, use in the industry. To, uh, to get their in-route weather and whatnot. And there's a feature, at least on the, the latest version of WSI, where you can overlay either a low in-route chart, a high in-route chart, or the VFR sectional chart. And right. it, depending on your Zoom feature or whatever level you're at, it'll overlay it so that you have your flight path with the high in-route uh, IFR sectional, or chart, and then you'll have the the radar overlay, echo tops, and even now they have a feature that gives you your turbulence, uh, anticipated turbulence ratings. So it's amazing to have this multi-layered feature, and the chart is great, which I just really recently learned about in the last 30 days, because you can sit there and go, well, instead of just asking for left deviations, right deviations, for 100 miles or 200 miles because ATC is constantly going, well, how much further do you think you'll need on this heading? And now with this overlay of the high and root chart, we can just go, well, um, we're thinking we're going to head on over to you know, like A, B, C, D, E, F uh, waypoint. And then from there, we're going to go to you know, W, W, Z, Z waypoint. And then from there, we'll go to like Tulsa and uh, be able to type those waypoints in their computer. And they're now knowing exactly what we're looking at and what we're intending to do, man, is it a game changer. It, it made navigating around the thunderstorms uh, a lot. Uh, it, it, left, it left all the guesswork out. It made it a lot more accurate. And um, what's, what's interesting is, like you said, all the thought and everything that we were putting into comfortably navigating around those thunderstorms passengers in the back watching their netflix with no idea what the amount of energy that was put into getting them from point a to point b and i and even throughout this entire process with all this weather that we were contending with the sequel sign remained off pretty much the entire time because we were in smooth air the whole way. It sure did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it was a great, it was a great experience. I really did enjoy day one of our trip, you know, and here we are, uh, we met up in the, uh, the legacy airlines, uh, flight office downstairs. 
Um, and we were, you know, just sitting there and I was looking up stuff on the computer making sure I was current and all my updates were done. And, you know, you came right up to me and you're like, Hey, how are you? You know, we hadn't seen each other since, since training really. Right. And, uh, and that was just about a year ago. And you looked at me and you're like, well, what are your overnights? I'm like, oh, well, I'm with you. <laughs> I had not looked at the, uh, the schedule or at least the HI3 to figure out who my, my uh, first officer was. So yeah. That was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, so here we are, you know, our very first day. We hadn't seen each other in a while. And the last time we we spent some time together was in the simulator and we're going to get into that uh a little bit later here in the show and then we find out we're flying together we break the cardinal rule we're talking about all all the things that are happening here uh in our world and in our in our country and the news cycle for the last uh, 72 hours and we've dealt with all the weather and it got me thinking about our first encounter the first time we flew together it was a quick two-day trip. I don't know if you remember. Um, and it, it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, okay. So what are you doing there? And I saw you had a couple extra bags with you. You had like nutrition packets in your bag. And you started talking to me about what you do. And you told me, well, I I'm run triathlons. I thought, oh, that's, that's you know, cool. Like, you know, as a hobby. Like, no, no, I'm on like on the USA team. Like, what? <laughs> so how did that all get started for you? So I was uh, pretty much uh, a chubby, chubby pilot. And in this profession, uh, you can easily put on extra pounds just by the nature of the job. You're traveling. It's very difficult to uh, eat properly when you're on the road. And, uh, you know, my kids were involved in sports. So I had, uh, kind of settled into a sedentary lifestyle and about six months before my 50th birthday, I decided, okay, enough's enough. You know, I, I was, my pants were tight. I was having to look at upsizing my, my waistband and, uh, I'm a little too vain for that. So I decided I'd go out and get a bike and try to do something about losing a few pounds. Bought a bicycle six months prior to my 50th birthday. And my goal was to get back down to what I weighed in college, which was 185. And I was about 225 or so. So on my birthday, February 9th, 2012, I made it to 190 and I did a 100 mile, uh, not really a bike race, but a, a more like a, just a bike, a cycling event in Palm Springs. Nice. And, uh, then a friend of mine got me involved in coming to the pool, getting some workouts there. And then he said, Hey, did you ever try, you ever think about triathlon? And I said, not really. Haven't, you know, haven't really followed the sport. And he said, yeah, it's just a swim, bike, and run. And uh, you do it all all together, different distances. And first thing I thought was, well, I can't do like the Ironman, you know, the, the 140.6 mile race. 
And he said, no, you can do the shorter distance, like the sprints, you know, half a mile swim, 12 mile bike ride, five mile run. I said, oh yeah, I could do that. So I started training with him and uh, next thing you know, I would uh, start, you know, my, my initial goal was to just finish. Mm-hmm. And then I started uh, getting to the point where I was actually coming in third place, second place in my age group locally. And and I started winning and uh, looked into uh, possibly qualifying for uh, nationals. And once I went to nationals, then I qualified to go to the world championships. And uh, over time, just uh, evolved into making uh, qualifying for the team for Team USA. Wow! And participating in now uh, six different World Championships and ten World Championship starts in different uh, events. You know that is amazing to hear, and the reason I find that so amazing is not the fact that you've done it and you've accomplished all this so far, and and you're still going, you're still at it. What makes it amazing? is you started when you were 50. 50. It's not like you're like, oh, he's too old. <laughs> no, he started, he started when he was 50. I mean, uh, really, what's, what's your excuse? <laughs> uh, I was an athlete all of my life. Uh, I played football. I wrestled. I played rugby in college. Uh, you know, I coached basketball. I mean, I've, I've always been an athlete involved in sports. My kids, my my daughter played soccer. My son played water polo. So uh, I just decided it was time to take care of me and, uh, you know, just um, do something that I enjoyed. And I, I really, uh, you know, running, playing basketball is very hard on the joints. And uh, the swim and biking and running is just a whole lot easier to maintain more of the uh, athletic appearance that I wanted, which was kind of a leaner, uh, not so, so muscular uh, physique. And, uh, I, and, and the thing is, I love it. And you can do it uh, on your layovers. You can train on your layovers with the exception of the bike. Although now they have these boutique uh, psych, indoor cycling places where you can get your rides in there if you don't uh, rent a bike. Uh, but you can swim at most of the hotels or at the beaches near the hotels, and you can run anywhere. So yeah, and so since you started this, you know, athletic journey, you've been able to travel the world with it. I mean, name some of your locations. Oh my gosh! I started out my first uh, world championship was down in Cozumel. Uh, I was uh, I made the USA aquathlon team. Aquathlon is a swim run event, and I competed in that in Cozumel. Following year, I qualified in two different events: the duathlon, which is run bike run, and the aquathlon. So that was in Penticton, British Columbia. Then the following year, I did two more uh, events in uh, Denmark. Uh, and then the year after that, Ponte Vedra, Spain. 
And then <laughs> wow. last year I was in uh, Luzon, Switzerland for the triathlon world championship. Yeah. And I remember when you were there and you were posting photos on your, on your social pages and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Look at, look at what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, you're out there with some world-class Olympic caliber athletes out there. Yeah. Having the time of your life. It's incredible. And the best thing about the sport is really the people. You get to travel and meet people just like in aviation, uh, people with the same passion uh, for what they're doing. And for an age group athlete, it's our Olympics. You know, the, that, that train left the station for all of us because of our age. So the age group world championships is, is our Olympics. We have an opening and closing ceremonies. We have the events, we have the award ceremonies. We have uh, sports psychologists, we have masseuse, we have uh, sports therapists. I mean, it's, it is a full on uh, involvement in the sport. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's what really floored me the first time we met because I've met some athletes in the cockpit before and for the most part, you know, uh, most aviators that are athletes as well are pretty humble about it. Um, as, as were you, but as you were telling me a little bit more and a little bit more, I kept saying, well, more, you know, tell me, tell me. Cause I was very interested as my listeners know, I'm a runner myself and right. uh, like you, I was one of those pilots at the beginning of my career and uh you know getting winded going up the jet bridge stairs after a walk around and thinking is this really it for me and sitting next to some aviators back in the day some captains that would say all right when you're ready to do the flight control check let me know i gotta scoot my seat back because <laughs> their guts were in the way and i was right. like is this gonna be me and uh and so that's how I got started. That was what inspired me. And I, not unlike my experience from the first time you and I flew together, I flew with a captain who was athletic. And I was like, what do you do? And he's like, well, I run. And he was running Ironmans and marathons, full marathons and, um, for, for pleasure. Right. And he was having a blast. And he kind of took me under his wing for that trip. And then those four days, we went running twice. And and it was enough for me. And that got me triggered on my personal athletic journey right. um, to run. I try to run one event a year. We've talked about this before. Um, lately, it's been kind of tough, especially sure. with the training and the you know, lockdowns that we've been experiencing. But things are starting to pick up. Gyms are starting to open up. And right. some of the layovers are getting a little longer. We're no longer at the airport hotel. We can actually go run downtown or wherever. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely uh, nice to see. Yeah, you just have to be creative about your approach. I mean, um, during the, the lockdown, I haven't been as active because a lot of the events have been canceled. But, I mean, you can take a yoga mat. You can take out your uh, iPad or your, uh, your notebook and pull up, um, you know, yoga or a, a workout, just a calisthenic workout. Uh, things that you don't that don't really require uh, any gym equipment and you can get pretty creative but the main thing is to keep moving and that's what I try to pass on to my mentorees is you know in this particular career 
uh, it's easy to gain weight and uh, because you're sitting on the job, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of uh, this career, let's dive into that. So, you know, we, we've kind of scratched the surface uh, flying together over the years uh, about how you got started in aviation. You got to tell me, how does a kid from the Bronx end up with such an amazing journey, both in aviation, in his service to our country, and as an athletic inspiration as well? It, it started at a young age, as young as I can remember. As a lot of us, uh, it has. Uh, my dad was a mechanic for Pan Am. And uh, when I was, I don't know, six, seven years old, uh, he would take me to, to work on the weekend. And he was actually one of the first 747 jet engine mechanics at Pan Am. Wow. Yeah. So he would bring me to work and I would run around in the 747, you know, going around and around the stairs up and down uh, from the, the main deck to the upper deck. And then I'd go to sleep because he worked the, the late shift. And after they finished their maintenance on the jet, he'd come wake me up and bring me up to the cockpit. And I'd sit in the flight engineer seat and they would tack the, that 747 from the hangar to the terminal. So I would sit there and pretend I was piloting that <laughs> 747. <laughs> oh, absolutely amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool uh, at, at Kennedy Airport, as a matter of fact. And, but what was interesting about that, Tony, was I never saw a brown pilot. I never saw anybody that looked like me. So I thought, yeah, it was cool to kind of dream about it. But in reality, I thought, I'll just be like my dad, be a mechanic. And so it wasn't until later on, a few, uh, actually quite a bit later, when I met a naval aviator, a guy named Ernie Taylor, uh, that was, he was a, uh, a black naval aviator. That's when I realized, oh, wow, yeah, I can fly. And for the longest time, I wanted to do commercial aviation, but that's when I realized, oh my gosh, you can actually, he took me to a Blue Angel show. And I saw the Blue Angels at the time they were flying the A4 Skyhawk. And I go, that is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and how did this meeting happen? Was it a chance encounter or was it through your father? Or? Ernie was, uh, um, he was a lieutenant commander at the time, uh, equivalent to an Air Force or Army major. And he was a friend of my mom's sister, my aunt. Huh. And they introduced me to him at a family function. And I latched on to him. And I think I probably, he, he probably was trying to figure out how to get rid of me, but I, I would not let him go. And uh, he ended up taking me to an air show and uh, he took me to my first uh, Naval Officers Association meeting. Uh, and that's, that's, I was not, I, actually I was a cadet at the time. I was a midshipman in college. and. Um, I was just a sponge of, for information from him. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It's amazing how, you know, a meeting like that 
and a relationship that grew from it could really alter your path so well, you know, so, so positively in your life. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up, like I said, my dad was a mechanic. Uh, I was in a great era of aviation. Uh, I watched last few Gemini missions where there were two astronauts and then, uh, almost every single Apollo mission. Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in the era, uh, with the Gemini missions, Apollo missions, you know, Apollo 11, when we had Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins on that first mission to the moon. And I, for a little bit wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, but then I realized that, uh, you know, just being an aviator was was going to be uh, good enough for me. Then I met Ernie and uh, Lieutenant Commander Taylor at the time. And when I he took me to the air show, I saw the Blue Angels. And then I was focused. I was laser focused. I knew I had to go to college. I had to get a degree. I had to get a commission in the Navy as an officer. And then I had to go to flight school. So I had that path laid out to me by Ernie. And also he was able to facilitate, um, you know, how to get down that path and having a mentor, uh, in this profession or any profession for that matter is, is tremendously important. I mean, if you have somebody to help you see it, lay it out, and then help you along the journey to get there, uh, that's, that's, that's key. That's vital. Yeah. yeah, having someone lay out that foundation, right? Man, it changes everything, and it's really a big part of why I do this podcast. Right? Because if I would have had someone that helped me carve out that path, right? This is what you avoid. This go mm-hmm. this way. Um, here's what you can expect. Here's some of the stories that you know might help you further on down the lo- road. Um, that that really could have changed maybe a little bit of my decision making process throughout the years and absolutely so you know to hear stories like this i find them absolutely amazing this is like another passion for me right to hear these wonderful stories of of how certain moments and certain people really have helped shape a direction yeah in your life a lot of people don't have that and it's it's wonderful that you had that opportunity yeah also i had uh you know, parents that listen, parents that cared. Uh, I was terrified of the schools in my neighborhood growing up in the Bronx. Uh, and I was pretty persistent and adamant about letting my parents know that I was afraid to go to the high school where I live. So they actually listened to me and they sent me after my, uh, seventh grade year in New York at a junior high school, they sent me to Maryland to live with my aunt and uncle. And I went to uh, Thomas Stone High School in Waldorf, Maryland. And it was rough going there, transferring from New York City to Waldorf, Maryland, which is kind of the country. Uh, But it, it was a huge adjustment, but it ultimately it saved my life. I mean, it led me down the right path that I, I needed to go to get where, where I am today. Yeah. How was living up in Maryland? Did that really, you said it was a little bit of an adjustment for you. What were some of the hurdles that you came across there? 
Well, I lived in um, the suburbs uh, in an area where it was predominantly white uh, families with my aunt and uncle. And uh, there was a smaller neighborhood of uh, blacks, African-Americans in a area just a little bit south of the school. And they were bust in to, uh, you know, post desegregation uh, to this high school. So some of my challenges were I lived in a neighborhood, predominantly white neighborhood, where a lot of my friends were. But then when I got to school, I had a hard time mingling, mixing and mingling with my own race, African-Americans because I didn't live in their neighborhood. So I kind of had to very gently navigate how to mix and mingle with both crowds, and that that was a challenge in high school. Yeah, I bet, especially at that time in your life when you're just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the thing that helped was sports. Uh, I played football, and I wrestled, and... So, and a lot of times, that's why I love sports so much is uh, a lot of times you can, uh, you can overlook certain aspects and uh, everybody comes together as a team and race doesn't become such an important factor in sport. Yeah. You've always had this kind of athletic leaning where you've you've kind of relied on that to help get you through some social challenges that you had to face because you were in a neighborhood that was primarily a white neighborhood. And so you were kind of being looked at, you explained to me a little earlier that you were kind of being looked at from both sides, from both your friends that were your neighbors that were white, that knew that they looked at you and you weren't the same color that they were. Right. And then you had, you know, those of your peers and your classmates that were being bussed in and kind of gave you a hard time as well because they said, well, you know, who do you think you are? You know, right. living in that neighborhood and, right. you know, 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 know who you are. Right. So that's some pretty heavy challenges at, at the age of 15 and 16 years old. It was. And uh, I had a, few close friends that I'm actually still friends with today. In fact, one of the guys that uh, <laughs> first day of school in the eighth grade, uh, Bobby Kinder punched me in the face the first day of school. So I'm a brand new New Yorker in Maryland, Waldorf, Maryland, and he punches me in the face because I kissed a girl that he thought was his girlfriend. Uh She didn't know (laughs) she was (laughs) his girlfriend. And interesting enough, through the years, you know, Bobby was abused at home by his dad. And he told me later on that he was just an angry kid. But again, we had, we found common ground in sport. Uh, I was a running back. He was a tight end. And sometimes we had to block for each other. And we became good friends. And we still are to this day. Uh, helped him along in his 
military career as a special ops commander and um, love the guy to death. And, and he, uh, he's, a, he's a great, great friend and a great source of information to, today. Yeah. 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 Amazing how, you know, some friendships start and end up being lifelong companions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so here you were in Maryland, you got through middle school and high school, and you took a path to aviation that at that time, really a lot of people thought was the only way to get into aviation, which is you started to do your due diligence and go to the library. You were telling me how you were sitting there at the library researching, you know, how to become a pilot, what kind of education you needed. And you ended up putting all your time and effort into trying to get into Embry-Riddle University. Embry-Riddle, that's correct. What can you tell me correct. about that? Yeah, so I, you know, they didn't have the internet, so I would, I had, my uh, mom had a typewriter that I borrowed, and I wrote all these letters to different schools. Uh, I believe Southern Illinois was an aviation school that I found through my research in the library, Embry-Riddle, and uh, I applied and got accepted into Embry-Riddle University. And I uh, had them send me some paperwork, some brochures in the meantime. And then uh, I got that letter of acceptance along with other information with regard to the tuition and the money that was going to be required for on-campus housing and I gave that to my dad, and he looked at this thing and this letter and said, I can't afford to send you to this school. Oh, no. <laughs> so in one fell swoop, you know, all the hours of preparation and, and preparing, you know, just research. And not only that, but my, my dreams to become an aviator came to an end right, right there. Yeah. Or at least that's how I felt. Yeah, I can imagine you that. I mean, I got to admit, I, I've had kind of a similar story. My mom and dad thought flying was way too expensive and way too dangerous. And, right. You know, since I was six, seven years old, you know, your parents are always, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anthony, what do you want to be? And my right. mom would always ask me, you know, like once a month she'd ask me, you know, and, and I'd always say the same thing. Right. I want to be a pilot. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> you cannot be pilot. Pilots are too expensive. Too expensive. And so, you know, I was kind of trained into believing that I just couldn't do it. Right. Um, but that's a little different. You know, here you were, you were older, you were, you know, your dad was in the industry. You had mentors in the industry that were successful. Right. And here you are doing your due diligence and you've, you've got this pathway ahead of you that you feel that it's completely attainable. And then to have your father say, uh, we can't afford this. Right. I mean, you must have been absolutely devastated. I was. But I also, at that moment, realized the, the core of my personality. And that was, okay, now we got to go to work and figure out how we're going to make this happen. So I went out, I got two jobs. I was uh, putting in, uh, I found a job at a pool company. And uh, actually, Bobby and I were delivering pools. Uh, we would deliver the pool kits on one day, and then we'd install them the following two or three days. 
So I was doing that. And then I worked another job in a tobacco warehouse. Uh, the guys picked the tobacco out in the field. They put it in a pile. I took it from the pile, put it on a pallet, and rolled it into the warehouse. So I did that because I thought my thought process was uh, now I'm going to have to pay for school. So I better get to work. And that's, I was prepared to work to, to achieve my goal. As it turns out, I had some relatives at the University of South Carolina on the staff at University of South Carolina. So my dad said, hey, I'll send you to South Carolina. You can live with your relatives and you can go to school on a reduced tuition as a South Carolina state resident. And so that's what I did uh, for one year. And I enrolled in the ROTC there. And uh, my best friend, another good friend of mine from high school, actually got a ROTC scholarship at Auburn University. And over time, we kept in touch. And he told me about the aviation program. And I ended up transferring to Auburn into the Auburn ROTC. Yeah. And so... And how was that? Was that uh, pretty seamless to? Uh, well, I started out, I actually started out as a Marine. I wanted to be a Marine aviator uh, oh. because I, I really, I'm, the Marine that was in charge of the program at South Carolina was uh, a guy named Major Rollins, and he was legendary. And he also was into fitness. And uh, we had this big competition at Auburn at the end of the year, it was like the national championship of ROTC fitness. And that's how I ended up actually seeing Auburn University is through that trip. Oh. And um, when I got to Auburn, I transitioned from Marine to Navy because they had more flying slots available uh, at Auburn at the time. But then because of the, the time frame I was graduating in, they weren't offering uh, as many um, pilot slots. So I actually got accepted into, uh, I had to do, go to surface warfare school. So I spent a year and a half in the surface warfare Navy. So I went down to San Diego after I graduated, got my commission. And I did a year and a half on the USS Enterprise up in Northern California and Alameda. Yeah, through the ROTC program. Through the ROTC. Wow. Right? And that's an amazing, you know, to be that young and in a program like that. Did you have any uh, fond memories of being aboard your first ship? Uh, I don't know if it's fond. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember my first Christmas away from home in the Navy on the USN, USS Enterprise. And I, I mean, you talk about timing. So they just finished filming Top Gun on the Enterprise. And I got there two weeks after the last uh, filming crew had left the ship. Oh. So I missed all the fun. <laughs> and then as they were coming in from filming that movie, they actually had a, an accident. They hit uh, a rock. It's Bishop's Rock. It's been up there for many, many uh, decades, and uh, the USS Enterprise ended up hitting this rock. So it was in the shipyard for 
oh gosh, I, I got up there in November of 1985 and we were in the shipyard until January of 86 when we left out on the cruise. And I remember that Christmas of 1985, it was my first Christmas away from home, we're in the shipyard, skeleton crew. So there's maybe 30 people on this, the entire ship. Oh, wow. And in the shipyard, it's dusty, it's dirty. They're taking asbestos off the ship. I mean, it was under, you know, they were repairing the ship, but they were also um, modifying it as well. So it was the worst. <laughs> I, I was homesick. I wanted oh. to be home. Uh, I had to work. I had duty. Yeah. And it was Christmas. And I'm, you know, I realized, okay, I'm in the Navy. I'm a grown up now. <laughs> yeah. So you made some, some pretty good sacrifices there um, yeah. at a young age. And how did that transition uh, into your commission? Did you graduate from uh, Auburn and, and just say, okay, now it's time for me to. Well, you, in order to be commissioned, you, you know, there's three different sources you can go. You can go to college and get your degree uh, and then go to officer candidate school. You can go to a service academy like the Naval Academy, or you can go uh, to a, a college, enroll in the ROTC. And what happens is you graduate. Uh, and the day you graduate, you get your d diploma in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they have a commissioning ceremony. So you get commissioned as a U.S. Naval officer in the afternoon. And then they give you your orders and they ship you out to, in my case, uh, uh, San Diego for surface warfare school. Yeah, wasting no time whatsoever. No. So I show up in San Diego. Uh, at the time, they gave you per diem. So I had about $4,000 cash. I had a brand new car. Uh, I was a brand new ensign in the Navy. Uh, and uh, I was going to California from Alabama. <laughs> wow. I mean, can you imagine? So sitting there living the life on Coronado beaches. Oh, oh. great memories. Oh, my God. Great memories. <laughs> In fact, uh, two good memories. And uh, interesting side note, my, we were in, in surface warfare school in class. We are sitting in alphabetical order. And, of course, my last name is Elmore, so I'm E. And the guy next to me is a guy named Mike Gilday. Uh, surface Warfare Officer School, 1985. Well, he is the chief of naval operations today. <laughs> now that is the highest rank you can achieve, right? I right. Mean, that, that's right. crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it's mind-boggling how what time will do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, everyone carves, the, carves their path uh, in life. And wow, it sounds like he's really carved <laughs> A good one, but your path is actually pretty impressive. I mean, you were telling me a little bit of, about some of the ships that you served on. I mean, the USS America, the USS Midway, the Independence, the Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, these are some <laughs> amazing aircraft carriers here. And we'll have more from Captain Elmore's amazing journey right after the break.
Yeah, it was uh, a long list of uh, a lot of sacrifice. Um, uh, the America, uh, I actually went to twice in the training command, uh, once in the T2 Buckeye and intermediate training, and then the next time when I went through uh, in my jet transition training as an intermediate student in the uh, A4. Uh, the Enterprise was my first cruise. I did that as a surface warfare officer. And then the Midway twice as an E-2 pilot and also the Independence. And then I went to back to uh, training, uh, my jet transition training. When I came out of that as an ES-3 pilot, then I did a tour on the USS Roosevelt on the East Coast and then the USS Benson on the uh, West Coast. Yeah, so I mean, talk about a, a wonderful journey in history in our armed services, landing on aircraft carriers. I mean, every, every civilian <laughs> pilot that I've ever met, it just looks at that with such awe and aspiration. I mean, is it really as adrenaline rushing as the films and you know, books make it out to be? Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, we talked a little bit about how a pilot can navigate and operate when everything is normal. Well, thank God everything was normal in the T2 Buckeye as an as a, uh, intermediate student your first time going to the carrier because you get about probably well, maybe about a hundred landings and then they take you to the ship and you go out in a five ship. You have the uh, lead aircraft as the instructor. And then the four uh, echelon students are all, once they break off in the overhead, they be, there's, you're, each one of us is solo going to the ship as, as, for the first time. And you're landing this airplane on a ship for the first time. And it, I don't even remember. <laughs> it was, oh, yeah. It, it's such a blur. Yeah. Um, maybe after like 10 landings, then, you know, you start to settle in, but uh, it's really a blur. What was the goal? Is it really third wire? It's the third wire. Uh, OK, three wire. And that's something we didn't talk about, but I was a, a LSO, landing signal officer, uh, which is the guy that... Uh, you, you train the people, you train the pilots to go to the ship, and then you're also responsible for safely getting them to land on the ship. So you have to talk to them, you know, tell them when to add power, tell them to go right for lineup, left for lineup, uh, power in the wires, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I did that 750 times. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and every single one is successful one. Well, not... Some are much better than the oh, others. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few hiccups in that uh, 750. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the most famous, I think, comment from passengers after a landing that is maybe not so uh, smooth is there's always someone, usually an older gentleman who sticks their head in the cockpit and goes, yeah, you boys are used to landing on the carrier, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, when, when they uh, 
when they compliment me on a landing, I always say, not bad for a Navy pilot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing with all uh, that with us because, you know, there's so much that we could, we could have a whole series of episodes just on your experience in the U.S. Navy alone. Uh, but your journey doesn't end there. I mean, really, that's just a small segment of your journey. You, you spent, you were telling me, 14 years active duty and then an additional 14 years in reserves. And, you know, you ended up, uh, as you said, on the Carl Vinson when your active ended in 99. And then you ended up on a short cruise on the George Washington. Well, can you tell me about that? So I was a staff officer with the third fleet at the time and the Washington was going out on this particular cruise, short cruise, uh, during a time where they were trying to collect data on submarines on a certain country. And we went out to evaluate our capability in the Navy to collect data. Uh, so that was the, the, the sole purpose of that, that cruise. Yeah. And I was out there for about uh, six weeks. So and what, what constitutes a, like a full cruise versus a short cruise? Is it just a certain time frame that you're looking at? Correct. So my first deployment or my first cruise on the USS Enterprise was uh, nine months. Wow. But I've been on, that was the longest. So I've been on a cruise for as long as nine months and as short as six weeks. But typically on a, a squadron tour, your cruise is around six months. Okay. Right. So your service lasted until 2013. Correct. But that's not where your journey in civil aviation began, we actually have to hit the rewind button here right, right. to kind of go back to somewhere around 1998. You were telling me that once you had graduated from the Naval War College uh, with uh, studies in national security and strategic studies, uh, you had met an individual through an organization that uh, we know as OBAP. What can you tell me about that? So... I had a friend uh, from the Navy uh, that introduced me to a gentleman at Legacy Airlines, uh, Frank Shooks, who happened to know the chief pilot at Legacy Airline. And on my last approach in my last uh, deployment in the Navy, I started to realize that I still had if I was looking at a, a successful career in the Navy, I was probably going to have to do another two, at least two, maybe even three more cruises. So I decided it was time to throw in the towel. Uh, the airlines were hiring at the time, and a friend of mine in the Navy introduced me to Frank Shooks, who worked at Legacy airlines. Mm -hmm. Frank and I had a, a great, established a great relationship. He became another mentor and he, he introduced me to the chief pilot at this uh, convention uh, 
for the organization of Black Airline Professionals. Uh, it's now changed its name to Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals because they're basically broaden their their scope. Uh, they used to just help people find jobs in as pilots in the airline industry, but now they try to help mechanics, air traffic controllers, um, any any career field in, yeah. in aviation. So he introduced me to the chief pilot. Um, I got a chance to interact with him, have dinner. And the, the reason why I ended up where I am today is because all the other legacy car- carriers, um, they, because I was going on this, this deployment, they wanted me to complete the deployment they wanted me to come back after the deployment and then apply for the airlines. Whereas legacy airlines said, hey, we'll interview you prior to your deployment. When you come back, let us know when you get back and we'll give you a start date. Nice. So I interviewed in 98. I went on my deployment. I got back in 99 and I started at legacy in uh, March of 99 after I got back. Wow. And you're used to this because, you know, go, go, go. It was right. the same thing with, uh, with the ROTC and then graduating from college and getting your commission. And it's like, right. no time to waste. Let's get this done. And here you are, you know, completing your service and right. immediately jumping right into a legacy carrier. Well, I wanted a seamless transition and um, an, a competitor of ours uh, thought my resume was good, but not good enough to come straight to uh, 121 operation. They wanted me to get experience in a regional, at a regional level. And at the time (laughs) I had probably 3,700 hours and 750 carrier landings and combat time. And yeah. So oh. <laughs> I I kind of laughed at that when I heard it. Yeah. But and I just kept it moving because I knew I was confident enough to know that I could I could operate at at a at a major level. Yeah. yeah. So you went you went to the carrier that really had the confidence in in your abilities simply from your resume. Right. You know. And the culture at the at the at Legacy from your experience, how's that culture any different than some of the other carriers? I felt like it was more of a culture of family, um, a sense of belonging. Uh, other places, I felt like it was more of a, it was, it was going to be a job, a business. Mm. And I felt this was closer to my experience in the military, where it was more about camaraderie and knowing the people that you're working with and being part of a family. Yeah. So your experience at Legacy Airlines has been going strong for 21 years and you still have quite a bit of time left. Talk about a pretty good run. About seven more. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you, what have been some of the, the biggest challenges to go from a military life to a civilian life. And I've heard, you know, uh, my wife is the same, said that 
you know, coming out of the military, getting into the civilian world, it was the way she puts it is almost like a culture shock. Did you experience some of the same opinions about that? I did, especially where I was in the military uh, doing five different combat deployments. I mean, you really establish a, a bond with your, uh, your comrades. And then you come over to the airlines and you don't see the same people every day. Every time you get in a cockpit, you're, you know, with a different captain. And it's, it's, it's a lot different, but it's all in what you make it to. So uh, I tried to be friendly and establish relationships. And I did. I, I was successful at that. Not as much as I was in the military, but uh, again, being at Legacy, it afforded me the opportunity to make some, establish some friendships. Yeah. And then the other thing that I uh, had a hard time adjusting to was the whole union management thing. And that was actually kind of a turnoff. I was um, at my first union meeting thinking, I, I just couldn't believe how combative it was. Uh, the, I think the union was trying to push um, some of the new contract language that was coming down line and trying to make us understand what was at stake. And I just thought, wow, this is something I didn't see coming when I came to the, the commercial aviation. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And those of us that, you know, this is all we've known, you know, from our very first 121 job to whatever you're doing today. I mean, it's like, oh, that union over there at that carrier sucks and or our union is good. But, you know, that union over there is better. And it's almost like we know only this small portion of how to operate with a work group. Right. And all we know is, you know, these these associations as as they're called, um, and how every airline kind of is part of a different association, even if you're one of the big carriers that is part of uh, what we call the Airline Pilots Association, the big one, the ALPA, um, which most regional and, and mainline carriers are part of, um, but not all, uh, like ourselves. We, we have our own. We have Legacy Airlines Association uh, carrier uh, union, but th- th- I, I can imagine how that, that could be difficult getting involved with the politics of it all versus the leadership and the hierarchy of the military. It's probably the biggest right, right. challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. So your, your experience here has been pretty impressive. Uh, you were telling me that you started out with an MD-80 and 90 type rating. You progressed over to 7576, one of the favorites amongst most of the aviators I have an opportunity to talk to. You also have some time in 7.3. You also have some time in the 7.87. And now the Airbus A320, where you and I are flying together. Right. So what has been your favorite aircraft to command so far? Without a doubt. Well, my favorite aircraft is the 7.8, without, a, without, without question. Yeah. They just took everything that was great about the 7.6 and made it better. Yeah. Um, the problem with the seven eight is because I was so junior on it, I was uh, 
basically an FB or an FC, which is the third and fourth pilot in an augmented crew. So you become more of a pilot monitoring, and uh, it makes you a little bit, I'd say, complacent. Well, every 90 days you get to go down to the schoolhouse <laughs> and get your three landings in. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, that is a fact. In fact, um, I flew that aircraft for a little over two years, and I had a little over 200 hours, and I had five landings. And three of them were when I was on IOE. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. And let's, let's talk about that a little bit, because I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to dive into that for the show, for the podcast. Um, so we have non-augmented and augmented flight crews in Correct. the airline world. Now, when you're flying domestically, it's non-augmented, and there's two pilots, a captain and a first officer. The captain sits in the left seat. They're the ones that sign the release and is uh, pretty much the authority or the, the person in charge, a pilot in command is right there in the title, um, for the aircraft. They're in charge of the passengers, the safety, the operation, to make sure that all the standard operating procedures are being followed. And the first officer can do everything that the captain does, but they just they don't have that authority. They're the second in command. Um, they don't have to sign anything, basically. Right. Um, but they both are equally qualified and checked out on the aircraft. And you go and you fly and you have uh, what we call FARs or Federal Aviation Regulation here in the United States. Over in Europe, they have the JAA and, and, and other countries have different regulators that control how much you can fly in a day. Uh, after the FAR 117, which is the title in which they talk about flight time and how much a pilot can fly uh, throughout the day, uh, it used to be it was a eight-hour hard rule. Now it's dependent upon your walkle or your window of circadian low or, you know, your duty uh, period, how long you've been flying, what time you woke up in the morning. There's, it's a very complicated string of regulations that all the pilots in the U.S. now have to abide by with this FAR 117, the new flight rules. Well, now we can fly up to nine hours. But when you're flying internationally, and you could be in the air 10, 12, 13 hours or more, you can't just go with two pilots. Right. And you need, you need a, a second FO or a third FO is what you were talking about, FBFC, uh, FOA or whatever. Um, and you were in the position because of your seniority, you were kind of too low on the totem pole to be the number one FO. You were either FB or FC. Correct. And Which meant that you would be in a a seat or a bunk for takeoff, you would be there for like, what, four hours? So, yeah, the way it works with the, with the four-person crew is you actually are all in the cockpit for takeoff. Oh. And then when you get up to altitude, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> so the routine is you get up to altitude, or actually before, let's go back down to the ground, uh, the F- B or the third pilot, he's usually does the walk around, and then the FC will do the bunk, make basically make sure the beds are are made in the bunk room, and make sure you have plenty of blankets and pillows, and then the FO will do the cockpit prep. So everybody's in the cockpit for takeoff, 
you get up to cruise altitude, you call the purser, and the purser brings up the food, and the FB, FC, third and fourth, first officer leave the cockpit. And you have the option of, on an international flight, you, go, you can go up to the bunk room or you can go to a first-class seat. Hmm. And on a 14-hour flight, you divide it up uh, in, in breaks. So you would be back on your break for three and a half hours. Then you come up to the cockpit, you do a swap. The captain and the first officer go back for their three and a half hour break. And then you swap again. And on that second time you're in, now you're going to let them sleep until about uh, 45 minutes prior to the approach. You wake them up. Everybody's in the cockpit now. You do the approach and you're done. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, a lot of systems monitoring and right, you know, and and that always intrigued me because, you know, we all know that the captain's the PIC, right? And I always and I don't know anything about it because I've never done that type of international operation, and I always thought, well, doesn't it make more sense to have like two captains and like there's a senior captain and a junior captain and then you have a senior FO and a junior FO and then you just kind of swap halfway through and because who's in charge when the captain goes to back to sleep for four or five hours. Is it the FO or the FB or the FC, or does it doesn't really matter? So what what they do is basically it's a seniority. So the most senior FO is in charge, and that's why when you're in an international status, you're required to have a first class medical. So you have to maintain that qual because they want you to be. I guess like a captain, you know, maintain uh-huh. your your first class medical. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, basically it's a seniority thing who who's in charge or maybe who the captain may trust more or the guy that has been on that route. You know, say for example, Dallas to Shanghai. If you've never been to Shanghai, then you're going to put the guy uh, in charge that's been to Shanghai before. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that because I, you know, I've read the regs and I've kind of reviewed them. I've never had to really study them or be tested on that because I do international, but it's, as you know, the Airbus, it's a two man crew. It's right. a non-augmented. And that was interesting that you say that, that to get back to the uh, first class medical statement. Uh, you know, so we've always said on the show, if you're interested in flying, there's no time like today to get started and you don't have to throw thousands of dollars down on the table to get started. You can get started with as little as maybe $100 in literature and start studying. There are plenty of free online courses you can do, and you can go up and take a couple lessons and see if it's something that you like. And what you're going to learn almost immediately is that every pilot in the U.S. at least has to have a medical certificate on top of their pilot certificate. When you're starting out and you get a student pilot certificate, that is conjoined with your third class medical, which is the the highest class that you really need to become a student pilot. As you progress and then become a commercial operator or uh, an airline operator, you eventually need to get a first class medical. So what I usually do is tell people, well, if you wanna get started, you know, find a good flight school, find a good instructor, that's the key and then go and get your student pilot certificate 
once you've decided that this is a career field that you really want to pursue, then at that point, even if you don't have your private in your hand yet, and this is something you're going to really pour your time, your effort, and your money into, go and get a first class certificate immediately. Because if you have any issues that may hinder you later on down the road, better that you find that out now before you've spent thousands of dollars or years of training to find out that you have a disqualifying issue. Also, if you do the work and you find out that you have an issue maybe with medication or maybe with a vision problem or something like that, that could be corrected, you can go ahead and correct it before you get into it to make sure. Now, you had mentioned that as a first officer, if you're an augmented crew, you're required to maintain a first-class medical certificate. And the question is, well, aren't all airline pilots a first-class medical certified? Well, at least at our carrier, at Legacy Airlines, all pilots are required to have a first-class medical certificate. However, if you're a first officer and you are in a non-augmented crew, meaning it's just the two pilots, domestic or international, um, and you're never going to be sitting in the left seat, then your first class after either six months or whatnot, it will lapse to a second class medical. Um, so it's a first class medical certificate, but it now is only good for a second class certification. Right. And then depending on your age, after 12 months, I believe it is, you have to go back and go get another first class, which is where I'm at because I'm over the age of 40. So it only lasts six months and then I, it lapses to a second class. And then before it expires, I go in, get another first class medical. If you're an FO in an international operation that has an augmented crew, you can't let that happen. That's correct. So if you're over the age of 40, you have to every six months go in to get your first class medical reinstated. Right. So, and that's interesting because we get the emails and I even, our computer program here at Legacy flashes an email message at me somewhere around the six-month mark going, hey, your first-class medical for augmented crews will expire. <laughs> and it's a message I can't make go away, so I have to right. clear the message. And then 48 hours later, oh, by the way, your FA first-class medical is about to expire for augmented crews. <laughs> right, right. Is there a way I can just ignore this? Because <laughs> now my inbox is full of the same message. <laughs> right, right. So you've had a wonderful career here uh, at Legacy Airlines. And you kind of got in at a really good time in aviation. How long were you in the right seat? Started in 99, and I didn't upgrade until 2016. Ah. So uh, 17 years. Now, I could have gone to the 7-3 a little bit sooner, but I did not want to go to the 7-3. I had some experience in the 7-3 for a couple of years. And just, you know, after flying the 767, 757 for so many years, I had no desire to go into a small cockpit like the 7-3. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was my biggest uh, deciding factor. Um, I think, you know, there was a benefit for me having to had commute to Chicago and to New York. Uh, all those years, uh, I spent over a decade commuting wow. for regional carriers. Wow. Um, um, and there was 
breaks and times in there, uh, periods of very short periods of time where I was based at home in LA, which was great. But you know, the rest, my all I knew was commuting, and I had to sit in the jump seat of many an aircraft. And right. I always thought, as uncomfortable as those three and four hour commutes were for me, I learned so much from watching crews from all the majors, from American, the Delta, to United, to Alaska, Southwest. I mean, I was able to sit in a lot of cockpits and mm. observe and learn. And I discovered early on that pilots are pilots. We're all people. He or she could be the sharpest aviator you've ever come across, and they could be flying a CRJ. Or they could be aloof and not following SOPs, and they're the FO on a 777. I mean, it, it, it just... It is what it is. People right. are people. Um, just because you're at a mainline carrier doesn't mean you're an ace, you know? You're, right. Yeah. So right. I learned that early on. And I learned that that 737 cockpit is almost as uncomfortable as the MD-80. Right. That's exactly, yeah, that was my thought process as well. Yeah. yeah. And the MD-80, you were sitting in an elevated seat that clips to the back of the cockpit door and your feet don't touch the ground. So you actually have stirrups that fold down from the center pedestal. And every time you lift your foot up, they're spring loaded and they go thong. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Much nicer to commute in the Airbus for sure. Yeah. That made my decision easy. Yeah. It really did. And as, as a pilot in the Airbus, it's nice to not feel like that person behind you is, riding on your back <laughs> yeah and i i had a chiropractor for many years because i was commuting in and out of seattle oh and uh, alaska often gave me a ride yeah and if you were in the second jump seat which alaska has two jump seats in the back of their seven three mm-hmm. or in the cockpit and uh if you were in the jump seat behind the captain and the captain was over four foot tall, (laughs) your knees were touching his shoulders or her shoulders. And it was very uncomfortable. Right. right. You know, my, my chiropractor loved me for quite some time. Right. (laughs) So you've, you've had your experiences, the seven, eight by far. And, and I've had the privilege of only being in the cockpit a handful of times, but let me tell you that airplane is a dream lifter. It is beautiful. It is the uh, just a few things about it. Um, you know the it it first of all, it's like flying in your living room. I mean, you can have a yeah. conversation just like we're having right here, without any of the uh, ambient noise. Uh, the air is uh, humidified, so it's not you know really dry. Uh, the wings are so flexible that it actually handles the turbulence much better than any other aircraft I've ever flown in. Yeah. And uh, the cabin altitude is a little bit uh, lower than you're used to in a, in a normal jetliner. So a normal jetliner, you're looking at the cabin is pressurized. You're in a hollow tube f- around five miles over the surface of the earth on an average flight, traveling right. over 500 miles an hour. Right. And the tube is pressurized. Right. Okay. So there's air being forced into the tube, and unlike popular belief, it's not recycled air. It actually goes in, it circulates throughout the cabin, and then it goes out the back of the aircraft. Right. And most aircraft in the U.S., airliners, their cabins, when they're at their maximum operating altitude, are pressurized to 8,000 feet. Right. The 787, a little different, it's pressurized to 
About 5,000. 5,000 feet. Right. So you're not, your body doesn't feel like it's as, as high in elevation. Right. So the oxygen concentration as well is a little higher. And that aircraft has a unique feature as well. It has three packs. Right. Or, or passenger uh, air conditioning and heating system. And those three packs have an additional feature, which are these humidifiers that right. humidify the dry air of the pressurized cabin. Right. And you fly and you land and you're like, I feel great. I'm not right. tired. A I'm lot not less flight fatigue. Correct. I don't have as many ear blockages. Right. I mean. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any aircraft manufacturer out there that is building aircraft for the future, they really need to consider not following the status quo of the past and start really pushing to these breakthroughs with cabin um, comfort and pressurization. Right. And as far as the cockpit's concerned, the, the, the one thing that they can do to improve that would be to put a joystick in the cockpit. I, I have just heard through the power of my brain a lot of voices going... Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Being a, a military guy, that I'm I'm partial to the joystick. To um, it, it just has a to me a more natural feel because that's what I flew for so many years sure. in the military. But uh, you know, I'm I'm an equal opportunity yoke joystick kind of guy. So <laughs> yeah. no, I I do. I have to admit, you know, I, I spent a long time with an aircraft with those ram horns up front for the, for the yoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, a little over two years now on the bus. And I got to tell you, like I'm sitting here right now talking to you with my legs crossed, mm-hmm. very comfortable. Um, and at work, once we're at cruise, I find myself in the exact same position right? with my seat just slightly back and my legs crossed and I'm very comfortable just sitting there having a conversation. Right. And you just, you can't do that in an aircraft that has the yoke right in front of you. Now, commanding that yoke like you're riding a motorcycle on a, uh, <laughs> a race circuit right. is cool. That's, that's a good feeling. And, and, but it's okay. I'll just go fly a GA aircraft when I want that feeling. <laughs> right. And, and then, so the reason why I said the only thing that would make it better was it also has uh, not one but two HUDs in it Mm. so the the heads up display uh which we had in some of our military aircraft uh, just makes it it's one more layer of uh automation comfort or ease that helps you control that aircraft um at a at a very precise level yeah yeah, especially coming in on a Cat three landing with a HUD, yeah. game changer. I, I and I never thought, you know, when I was on the seven three, I thought, well, I can fly this airplane just as good as the captain. The captain has a HUD in the seven three, and the FO doesn't. But, yeah. um, it it really does. It's a game changer. You can see and anticipate uh, differences and changes and trends much better with that HUD display. Yeah. yeah. So here at this point in the, the interview, I would really like to ask you a couple kind of quick fire questions just to see what your thoughts are. Okay. So, you know, we, we already know what kind of sparked your journey in right. aviation. 
And, you know, having a mentor at a young age really does make a huge difference. Other than that, what has been the most significant driving factor in your pursuit for this career? Wow. Uh, just personal achievement. Just, you know, I, I never really initially, because I was in the military, I thought, um, you know, being a pilot was, was good enough. And then it, being in the military, I thought, you know, I've already been a commander. I've already been uh, officer in charge of a, a squadron. Uh, so in this career, being a captain and, and achieving the, you know, moving over to the left seat, while it's only, you know, a, a matter of time through seniority to get there, uh, when you look at the level of experience to get that seniority. And then, you know, when you take a look and you go, wow, I'm the captain of an airliner of the large, one of the largest airlines in the world, then it all puts it in perspective. So for me, the driving factor is to be good at what I do at one of the largest airlines in the world. The passion is the progress of getting here is from what I'm hearing you say. And then once you're here, once you've made it, now you've achieved really your end game here. Right. There is no higher. Right. You know, now it's relying on all your experience, as you've mentioned, to maintain that responsibility. Right. So that, that shows that you, you thrive on the responsibility right. of, of your position. Yes, and also, like we talked about earlier, um, well, we didn't really get into it, but I believe that being uh, fit also plays a, a, a factor in being good at what you do. How so? Um, I, I think, you know, the level that it takes to maintain a certain level of fitness, even if it's at a recreational level, just helps you be, uh, have a little bit more energy, helps you be a little bit more sharper mentally, um, helps you uh, do the mental gymnastics that's required in situations like the other day when we had weather, where you just, you know, not only do you move quick on your feet in your fitness, but you move quick on your feet, so to speak, mentally in the cockpit. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that too. It's funny that you would put it in such terms because that was one of the driving factors that got me out of the cockpit mm -hmm. and out of the bar, eating wings, having a beer with the crew. As soon as we, you know, got to the hotel and I unzipped my overnight bag, it was like, all right, see you downstairs in five minutes. And instead of doing that, I learned and pushed myself forward to, all right, as soon as we get to the hotel, uh, it's a beautiful day. I'm going for a run. Uh, I'll text you when I get back. If you're around, great. We'll go grab a, a bite to eat and a beer. And if not, then I'll see you in the morning. And it took a level of maturity in myself to strive for that. Mm -hmm. I grew a little by striving for that. And just like you said, I didn't need that second cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was a little bit more alert, more situationally aware in the cockpit. 
Mm-hmm. I was able to handle the stress that is opposed upon us mentally when we're in the cockpit because I was used to dealing with the stress that's opposed upon you during your training physically right. and how to recover from that and how not to get injured because at the end of the day, as a professional athlete or a recreational athlete, the goal really is don't get hurt. Right, right. And, and it, just a quick story, um, my, probably one of my first all-nighters, uh, L.A. to Dallas in a MD-80, um, I remember taking off, and I remember getting the cruise, and then I remember the approach, and the captain says to me, hey, do you drink coffee? And I said, no, sir, I don't, I don't drink coffee. I spent 14 years on active duty, and I never touched a cup. And he goes, you probably should think about starting. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I had slept. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> or dozed off. Yeah. I don't know if I want to say that. But um, I, had, uh, I, was, I was tired. You know, yeah. I, I, I didn't have the energy that I probably should have. And I never really had that problem once I maintained a certain level of fitness. Yeah. So there's a different, a different level of alertness once your body's physically active. And it's funny that we're here, we are talking about this on an aviation podcast after a wonderful discussion about your journey and a similar conversation I remember having with an individual who was a psychiatrist that uh, was a professional child psychiatrist and their thesis paper was on the differences between grade school children in the 70s and grade school children after the millennium, of 2000 and forward. And her research showed that the children in the 70s were more alert and less fidgeting than the children of today. The whole paper was stemmed from research on why that the prescription of Adderall went up 1,000% after the year 2000. Wow. So what she discovered through her research was in the 70s, playgrounds had merry-go-rounds, jungle gyms, monkey bars, the, the ladders, the, the trees and poles and jump ropes and balls. And these kids, every 45 minutes, the bell would ring. You'd run outside. You've got 10 minutes to just jump and crawl. And and some kids hurt themselves. Some kids would fall and break their arm. It happens. It's part of growing up. At least that was the mentality and the social belief in, in that era. And somewhere down the road, the school district got sued. So they got rid of the merry go round. Then they got rid of the jungle gym and the monkey bars and the tetherball courts. And what you're left with, if you look at any grade school, elementary, or junior high nowadays, you've got blacktop, you've got grass, maybe a baseball diamond, and that's it. And these kids go for an hour and a half, and they usually get two recesses a day, of which one of them's a lunch, and they barely have time to eat that. And then the bell rings, and they have maybe five minutes of horseplay. But no, don't run. They'll blow the whistle. So these kids are growing up, and they're growing up in a generation where they have all this physical energy that they need to expel. And her correlation was that the mind and the body 
are directly linked. And so the children that were more active, that were able to do sports after school, after they start getting rid of these recesses. Or um, PE for that matter. And yeah, a lot of schools are, are eliminating PE. Or you can right. just sit there quietly if you don't want to participate. Right. No, that's the problem. Right. So now all these kids are like, oh, they have ADD. It's like, well, really? Or maybe they're just have a bunch of pent up energy and they need a physical outlet that right. is healthy physical outlet. So it's funny that she saw this correlation and she wrote a book about this. Um, and here we are talking about really the same thing in our career profession as adults, that we're in a sedentary position. As you mentioned, it's easy to gain a little bit of weight. You're sitting for hours on end. Yeah, yeah, you walk through the airport and you might walk or go for a jog. But unless you're physically really pushing yourself enough to get your heart rate up, to break a sweat, uh, you're really not pushing your body. And I think that's what's happening with us as we get older. We get less physically active. And we, have, we combat that fatigue of not moving with coffee, with stimulants, with soda, with energy drinks. Those are all bad for you. Right. And all, if you just went out and run around the block a few times, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's a huge difference. Yeah. 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 So, and thank you for, for sharing your insight on that. You know, your, your career is, was impressive the first time we met, <laughs> the little bit we spoke about it. Um, it. It was impressive flying with you again this week. And we talked a little bit about it and you agreed to, to, to speak with us here on the show. And I was so happy because I knew we were in for a treat. Well, I, I have to tip my hat to you, Tony. You're an incredible pilot. Uh, you're also very knowledgeable, uh, a joy to fly with. And um, you bring a certain energy to the, to the table and into the cockpit that makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah. Makes Thank it, you so much for saying great. that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, but you've, your career field, you know, between the military time and, you know, you're 28 years in and you're 21 years here, what have been some of the biggest challenges if you had to just sum them down to a few? Wow. Challenges. Just, um, I've always felt as, uh, minority that sometimes I need to prove myself. I, I feel like I need to prove every time I step into the cockpit that I belong. Um, I need to make sure I'm bringing my A game to work every day. Uh, and then the challenge I put on myself is you know, I want to get everyone from point A to point B safely. And I take that very serious. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself as far as getting my job done, um, you know, to, to make sure I accomplish what I'm, what I'm here to do. Yeah, and a lot of people starting out in this level of the game, uh, maybe they were, you know, in GA or corporate and now they're, coming on to their first airline job, you know, they all have to go through their first couple of years of experience and learning. Uh, like, hey, going into a snowstorm, it, it's pretty intimidating. But after a few times, it's like you start to realize where your limits are 
and you keep yourself on the road, uh, per se. Um, but with that, there's some other challenges that we don't talk about, and we just kind of have to learn through trial and tribulation or through flying with people that have been around for a while and have maybe have a little bit better insight. And that's really what I want to get out of you. Very important question to me, and that is that many professionals have learned firsthand uh, how very difficult it is to juggle the conflicting demands of your professional life and your family or home life. What has been your secret? I think one of the, um, the best way I can describe it is, you know, as, an, as aviators, we've been known to be able to compartmentalize. And I think you have to be really, really good at it because you can't take all the, you know, our lives are not, unfortunately, not perfect. And on those imperfect days, you can't bring that imperfection into the cockpit and vice versa. If you've had a rough day in the cockpit and you come home, you don't want to take that and bring that home. So we have to be really good at compartmentalization and not take home to work and take work to home. Yeah. You know, we, we get along pretty, pretty well. And it's actually a pleasure when I saw your name on the list there that we were flying together again. But it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes you get in the cockpit with someone, maybe you've flown with them before. So you, those situations, I think, are a little better because you can at least expect how things are going to go. Or you're in the cockpit with someone you've never flown with before. And, you know, 17 years as an FO is a long time. And, you know, you've had your share of captains that, you know, have come up through different generations or eras of, of flying with different uh, attitudes. What have you found is the best way to deal with those conflicting attitudes in the cockpit? Well, the, the good thing about being an FO for that long is you have, at, by that point, you've flown with so many different personalities. And you just figure out a way to, you, you, you get very good at finding out how you can click with a certain captain. What, what is it that you can do for that captain to make him a little uh, more relaxed uh, if, if, you're, if you feel any tension at all? And that's what I became real, very good at figuring out uh, I'll give you an example. There was one particular captain, and everybody said, "Oh my gosh, he is so uh, um, uh, micromanage. He, he micromanages in the cockpit. He wants you to do certain things certain ways in the cockpit." So I found uh, something that we had in common, and that was soccer. My daughter played. He was a soccer coach, uh, a soccer referee. So I used to talk soccer, and it would put him at ease, and we found a way to work together. Um, and, and that's what I, I, was, I felt like I was very good at, finding something that we had in common that we could share that would kind of ease the uh, environment in the cockpit. Yeah. 
And, and it's funny you say that. I haven't thought about that in so long, but I've had a very similar situation. Um, years ago, I flew with a captain, and when his name came up, a friend of mine who was a fellow first officer at the time, uh, he says, oh, dude, Colin's sick. I'm like, what? He goes, Colin's sick. That guy is a jerk. Every flight is like a check ride. He's a check airman, and even though you're not doing check airman stuff, he's going to quiz you on everything. Like every word is you're going to be judged on and he'll let you know. And he's he's the jerk. And he you're not going to you're not going to have a good time. You should just call him sick. And I said, "Listen, I I'm an adult. I'm a man, okay? I've managed hundreds of people in my previous career. I think I can handle one guy. And if it's that bad, then I'll just kind of do my best to manage the situation and make the best of it." I'll probably never fly with him again after it anyway. And I ended up flying with this guy. And in the first trip, the first few legs, I would read an item on the checklist. And if I wasn't verbatim, you know, he would stop and go, what? And, you know, let's say, uh, gear down. Uh, I'm sorry, what'd you say? Oh, I'm sorry, landing gear down. Okay, that's better. Oh, yeah, oh, landing gear down. And it's the, just little things like that, sure. the nuances of your job. Right. And I got frustrated, and I thought, now I know what people were talking about. And he would test me and question me. He was like, oh, so what is the limitation on that? I was like, what are you looking at when the engine's starting? I'm like, well, I'm looking at, you know, so he was testing me verbatim, verbatim, the stuff that's in the book and the operating procedures. So I get to the hotel the first night, and I call my wife, and I was like, listen, this guy's an asshole. Like he's testing me on everything. So I'm like, well, didn't you tell me he was a check airman? I'm like, yes, he is. He's like the toughest one there is for the company. And she's like, so he's trying to get you to do things right. And he's holding you to a higher standard. And I'm thinking, Oh God, it's your twin. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so why don't you play the game? And try to call him on his shit. So you do your job and do it to the best of your ability. And then if he skips even a letter, doesn't dot an I, doesn't cross a T, you point that out to him. And she says, I bet you things will turn around. And anyway, after the next couple of days, you won't have to fly with them again, right? I was like, probably not. So the next day, I, I took her advice. And I did exactly that. And I was like all gung-ho. And I brought my A game, just like you said. I brought my A game and he was like trying to call me on one or two things. And I just would look at him and go, Oh, thank you for pointing that out. And then finally he did something. And I was like, I'm sorry, what do you mean <laughs> this and that? And I called him on his stuff and he goes, well, Oh, okay. And I almost saw the smile in the corner of his mouth uh-huh. and I just turned. <laughs> and so then I, I got away from all that because I no longer was frustrated right. by him. I didn't allow that to happen. Right. And I started asking him questions, which I saw made him feel a little uncomfortable. He didn't like talking about his personal life. And, but we had a lot of things in common that I found out. I said, so where do you live? Like, well, I live in Toronto. Oh, I was born there. Really? And he lit up. And I go, so you like the Blue Jays? And he's like, well, I'm more into hockey. My son's like going to go pro. I'm like, Hockey, Maple Leafs, right on. He's like, well, actually, I like the so-and-so, whatever. So we start getting in this conference. Next thing you know, we got along so good. It was like, it was wonderful. Wouldn't you know it? Two months later, 
I was scheduled to fly with him for the entire month. Ooh. Okay. But I didn't feel upset about it. Right. And I could remember doing aircraft swaps, get, you know, parking at the gate. Everybody's off. Now, Captain and I are getting off the plane. And I'd see the FO that's taking the airplane for the outbound up on the jet bridge. And he'd take one look at me and goes, hey, what's up, man? I was like, hey, what's going on? It's a good airplane. Cool, man. And then he'd look at my captain and he'd go, oh, you're flying with that guy. You should call in sick. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like my best friend. Right. It's like my brother, you know? And, and that's, I actually enjoyed flying with him after that because I wasn't so sensitive. Right. I didn't bring my unconscious bias of this guy everyone says he's a jerk so he must be a jerk so when i come in here the minute he acts like a jerk aha he's a jerk well the truth is i came into the cockpit after trying to just show him that hey man i can play the game too right i didn't get offended right and i started treating him like a person started asking him questions actually had interest in what he had to say finding all the common ground Next thing you know, we had experiences together flying into some pretty crappy weather where he was like, man, that was really good. That was a great landing. Right. You know, and right. I couldn't have done better myself. And that applause from him, that, that little bit of encouragement, it lasted me all these years. Right. You know? Right. And, and that's the, the great thing about, you know, aviation, but... Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if we could all just take each one of us or take each other for face value, you know, just don't have any preconceived notions, don't have any assumptions about that individual that you're about to fly with and just let things kind of develop and then evaluate it and see how you're going to deal with it and adjust on the fly. I mean, that's that's been the cool thing about my career in, in, in commercial aviation is all the different personalities and how to, how to adjust and, you know, work on the fly and deal with different uh, personalities. Yeah. Yeah. You know? This job has saved my life in more ways than one. Yeah. And not just because I found my passion and I don't go to work. <laughs> I, 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 I come to work right. because I get paid. And I'm a professional because I'm getting paid to do what I love. Right. Um, but yeah, it's really changed my life, not just in that aspect, but in my social aspect too, because now I can actually have learned to hold a conversation and find the common ground and the interest and look beyond the exterior and see who a person is and how they treat others. And I mean, being kind to each other. Yes. Being professional to each other, regardless of what we look like. Right. Uh, regardless of the perceptions we have. That's everything. Well, it's, it's so important, especially in today's environment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which, it leads us into what we were talking about at the onset of our day yesterday. Right. Um, but, you know, your favorite layover so far? You've been to many. Ooh, favorite layover. Uh, I flew Hawaii for so many years. Uh, I'd have to say Hawaii. That's one of those layovers that I get to the hotel and I say, hey, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go for a swim. I'm going to go for a bike. I'm going to go hiking. Uh, I will do that and I'll call you or text you if you're around. Great. If not, you know, catch you tomorrow. But 
I'd say Hawaii's probably my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. my my uh, my regular listeners know that I'm right there with you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So if you can go back in time for just a moment and whisper in your own ear as a young man, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to be aggressive, be precise, do your homework, be diligent, study, and uh, be persistent, and continue that throughout your career and never let up, never rest on your laurels, because in this profession, you could get yourself in a whole lot of trouble if you rest on your laurels. And, you know, just because you move to the left seat and you reach your so-called pinnacle of your career, you still have to work. You, you, not that you're working. I mean, like you said, we're getting paid to do a job that we love. And my son, in his 27 years of life, had a very interesting thing to say. He said, you know, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. But just because you reach that, that ultimate position, um, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to uh, continue to be good at what you do, be a good influence, be a good leader, um, and, and just try to be uh, a positive source of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like anything else. You have to nurture it. You have to feed right. it. You right. have to exercise it. You know, right. you have to keep studying keep expanding, don't settle. Um, but no, all great advice. So if you can think back to one person in your life that has made the greatest impact to your life, who would that be? You know, I, I've thought about this question over and over again, and it, it's got to be my dad, you know, and, and we, my dad and I have been, we've had our ups and downs, but my dad is the one that took me to work, and he, he lit that fire uh, and, and planted that seed. Um, and so, and, and he's been there continuously uh, throughout my career. When I graduated from Auburn, and I was told that they didn't have enough aviation slots, and I got the surface warfare school orders. You know, he gave me a set of gold wings and said, never lose sight of your dreams. And um, I actually took those gold wings because I still have them and showed them to my the cadet class that I spoke to. And I said, never lose sight of your, your goals and dreams. So my dad. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing that he yeah. would have the foresight to do that for you. Yeah. Uh, it kind of chokes me up, but yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And thank you for sharing that with us. You know, here on Squawk Ident, we focus on the journey of today's aviator, how they got here, because we all recognize that this is a career field and a passion that we can't do on our own. We need help and we need to learn from those that came before us. I often say that I stand upon the shoulders of all those aviators I've flown with in the past that have made me who I am today both in and off the flight deck. Um, and, you know, I just want to say thank you so much 
for sharing your journey with us. It's been amazing to hear of, of all your stories and, and your experience and the path that you took to get here. It's a pleasure to fly with you, sir. Mm. I, I want to say thank you for spending a few hours with us here today uh, on our layover. And now uh, I look forward to heading out on our wonderful layer, layover here in, uh, in Massachusetts at the Hartford, uh, Springfield, Bradley, Windsor Locks uh, <laughs> communal airport here. Right. Why do they name city uh, airports multiple cities? I'll never forget when we got to uh, training and we were doing the um, flight manual review. And they said, this is going to be one of the hardest airports to look up. BDL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and find, find BDL. And we're all looking and we're like, Bradley, Bradley, you don't see Bradley. Because it's Windsor Locks. Well, you're looking up at the B's and it's <laughs> right. <in> the W's. <laughs> right. And for those aviators out there that are, have never had to deal with Jeppesen charts, uh, paper charts, you've always had an electronic flight bag. You're thinking, what? You just search BDL. <laughs> what? You know? And you're like, shut up. <laughs> right, right. You know, I used to have to like update my charts every two weeks in the crew room two hours before my flight because oh my i wanted gosh. to be up to date and, and build trip books and look up airports and if you didn't know the code you were screwed and you're like right. well, anybody know how to find bdl <laughs> oh man oh yeah so yeah there was i'm the same yeah i'm the same we had to do the revisions the manual re revisions yeah <laughs> so now i look forward to going and Grabbing a bite to eat and a, and a yes, good sir. brewski with a you, sir. Barbecue. Yep. And uh, enjoy. Uh, I want to spend also a moment to say thank you to all of the frontline workers out there. All the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all of the airline employees out there that are providing essential service so that all of us can be present and available to do our part in this current situation i want to say thank you thank you to you thank you Kevin. tony for and, having me you know what a pleasure been a, it's been a, a a great time <laughs> well ladies and gentlemen that concludes episode 50 of squawk ident I had a wonderful time sitting down with Captain Elmore and discussing his journey in aviation and what a wonderful journey it has been. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? Please review the show on your favorite podcast player and share the show with a friend. We love reviews and listener feedback as well. You can send us audio feedback and comments via our website. That's at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, OscarNovemberYankee.com. There you can check out our unique episode cover art that I produce for each episode. You can also find audio archives, photos from the flight line, our pilot shop, and the guest book photo tab. You can also contribute to the show and help us by becoming a producer of the Squawk Ident podcast, either with a one-time or recurring contribution, right there on the home screen. For Facebook and Instagram users, you can search Squawk Ident Podcast. And for YouTube and Twitter users, you can search Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to follow on the socials. I want to say one final thank you again to Captain Kevin Elmore for sharing his journey with us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And thank you for all of you that are taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down. Be safe. 
and take care of each other.